You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the book of Romans, the eighth chapter. I want to share tonight from Romans chapter 8, verse 14, but to hear this verse in a larger context, let's begin reading at verse 1, and we'll read down to the 14th verse. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And now we come to our verse, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing on His Word. Father in heaven, thank You that now we have the opportunity, having sung Your praises, having had the privilege to sing the truth together. Now, Lord, we open Your Word together and we ask that You would teach us. Would You strengthen the preacher and the listener so that Your church is edified as Your Word goes forth, so that the lost might hear the voice of the Son of God and live, being called out of a spiritual grave into life, into the kingdom of Your beloved Son. You alone, Lord, can do this. You alone are worthy of praise for this, so we ask. And we will be careful to give You praise for what You do. In Jesus' name, Amen. There is scarcely a week that goes by that I don't hear someone say something that has reference to the assurance of salvation. Pastor, I'm concerned because I'm just not sure that I'm saved. Or there's someone that I love that they say they know Jesus, but I'm concerned about whether their claim to know Jesus is true. Or we will hear a testimony from the baptistry, and someone will say, you know, for a long time I thought that I knew Christ, But then my eyes were opened and I recognized that I didn't really have the Son of God and the Lord saved me, which means that during those years when they thought they were saved and they were not, they knew a false kind of assurance. 
So, I mean, there's almost some reference to the assurance of salvation that I hear and probably that you hear almost every week. God wants His people to know that they are His people. You need to know that. The Lord does not want us to live in sort of a constant misery of wondering. If this is my last day on earth, will I be with Jesus? Will I be in heaven or will I be in hell? Do I really have eternal life? Am I really a new creation? The idea that God has saved us, but then will not grant us the joy of knowing that He has saved us is contrary to the Word of God. And this chapter testifies to that. As you know, when you go further in Romans chapter 8, you have one of the greatest testimonies in all the Bible. In fact, perhaps the greatest testimony in all the Bible of the finality and the security of salvation. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And Paul goes through a whole list of possibilities, and his conclusion is nothing. The Lord, having saved us, will keep us. So God wants His people to know that they are His people. And from Romans chapter 5 all the way to Romans chapter 8, and really in a sense throughout the rest of the book of Romans, there are two main themes that Paul is teaching. Now, there are variations of those two themes, and there are statements and explanations and then applications and implications, but really there are two main themes from Romans 5.1 to the end of the book. Those two themes are the freeness of salvation and the finality of salvation. Salvation's free. What I mean by that is you don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't explain it. God is the one who saves. He justifies sinful men and women. He declares those men and women right with Himself when they believe on His Son. Christ has done everything to save sinners. And so, Justification is by faith alone, by grace alone that God saves us, justifies us by faith alone in Christ alone. And everyone who knows that free salvation at the same time knows the finality of salvation, meaning you are now secure for the rest of time and eternity. Where justification has truly occurred, Glorification is a certainty. No one has been justified by God who will not be glorified. In fact, in the mind of God who is not already glorified. Romans 5.1, listen to it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. I mean, we have it right now. We're not working for it. We're not striving for it. We have it. Through our Lord Jesus Christ... Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You hear what he's saying? You not only have peace with God, you are now stationed in the grace of God. And the result of that is heard in the next statement. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Let me just stop and I know you're hearing it, but I want to make sure you see it. He's saying that because of the freeness of salvation and the finality of salvation, we have joy as we look to the future. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also know joy in the present, even when the present is difficult. We're able to rejoice in our sufferings because God has told us what He's up to in the lives of His children when they suffer. Knowing, Paul writes, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Wow. The promise of the gospel grants us hope, but then the product, even of our sufferings, produces hope because through those sufferings, God is forming the character of His Son in our lives. And as you see God's character being formed, as you see Christ's character being formed in you, 
There's a strange kind of assurance that comes out of that. Lord, look at what you're doing in my life, despite these difficulties. And that increases your hope. And he goes on to say, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And everything else in the book of Romans from that section forward is just an extended explanation of those truths. Let me just break them out again very clearly, briefly. One, salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ and is received by faith in Christ. The result of that is a new standing before God in His grace, and it's permanent. And the knowledge of that imparts to us a hope, which is to say a future certain expectation of glorification. We will behold the glory of God and be conformed to the image of Christ, and that hope will never be put to shame. That hope will never be disappointed. You will not find out one day that you were a fool to believe the gospel, a fool to trust in Christ. No, the promises of the gospel will prove to be true for all eternity. No one who has believed them will be put to shame, which is to say nothing separates us from God's love to us in Jesus Christ. Now, all of this has been guaranteed to us, sealed to us, in a very personal way. The Bible declares that God's Spirit is God's seal to the believer, the guarantee of our future inheritance. In other words, what marks us as the sons of God is the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. That's what he means in verse 14 when he says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Who are the sons of God on the earth? Who really belongs to God? Who really has salvation? Answer, those who are being led by the Spirit of God. And so tonight, I want us to think about how that statement is true, why that statement is true. And as we think about what we're seeing in verse 14, we must think about it also in the context of verses 12 and 13, which speak of a new obligation that has been imparted to every one of us who has this hope. So then, brethren, we're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We'll see it here in a moment. The whole human race divided into two families, family of God, the family of Satan. Those who belong to Satan are regarded as, de described as, truly are in the flesh. Those who belong to Christ are in the Spirit. The difference between the two groups is that those who are in the Spirit have the Spirit, and those who are in the flesh don't have the Spirit of Christ. Verse 9, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, which is to say you still see the operation of sin in your unredeemed humanist, you've not yet been glorified, though, though, though you still battle with sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. You first read that, you may think, He's saying that because Jesus was raised from the dead bodily, one day his people will be raised from the dead bodily. And of course, that's true. We will be raised from the dead bodily. Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying if the Spirit of God really dwells in you, then that Spirit, whose power explains the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, will be at work in your life in these mortal bodies, changing your life. In fact, he says in verse 4, look back there, 
Jesus died. Why? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk. That's lifestyle. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who are those who are truly the sons of God? Who are those who truly have the Spirit of God? You'll know them because they walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. So for the first time in the book of Romans, when you come to the 14th verse, for the first time salvation is described in family terms. For the first time Christians in the book of Romans are described as sons of God, which speaks of adoption. Our salvation is not to be thought of just in in judicial terms, but in family terms. And so what I pray for us as we consider this verse is, if you know Christ, you'll leave tonight with a greater sense of assurance of what the Lord has done in your life, that you will be able to rejoice in the salvation God has granted you. But for anyone hearing me who doesn't know Christ, my prayer is that it will become apparent to you that you're in the flesh, not in the Spirit. And my prayer for you is that you would truly repent and embrace Jesus for life. Two main points tonight, just two points. But as you know, that might go for a little while. Two main points. First one is this. This statement, talking now about the statement of verse 14, this statement is a proof of salvation's reality. The only reason Paul can say what he says in verse 14, that all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, these are the sons of God, the reason why he can say it is because salvation is real. It's not just words. It's not positive thinking. It's not just us telling each other, you know, the the people in the club, positive, happy, hopeful thoughts. No, when God saves someone, He really saves them. It's real. Which is to say that everything God has promised in His Word regarding salvation, He actually grants that. He actually does that in the case of the people whom He saves. Salvation is real. This is why the sons of God are able to be recognized. God promises sonship in salvation. We heard it read in our scripture reading tonight, John 1.12. But to all who did receive Him, that's Christ, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Everyone in this room who knows Jesus, you have experienced a new birth that cannot be explained by blood. It's not explained by the family you were born into. In the case of the Jewish people, they had such pride in their father Abraham. And at one point, as you know, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, I know Abraham is your father, but Abraham didn't do what you're trying to do. I'm paraphrasing now, which is to kill me a man who's told you the truth. Your father's the devil. What Christ is saying is, yes, you can claim Abraham as your physical father, but spiritually speaking, you're not in the same family. So salvation is not explained by blood, nor is it explained, he says, by the will of the flesh. That speaks of effort. You don't work your way into salvation. You don't discipline your way into salvation. You don't commit your way into salvation. It's not explained by the will of the flesh, nor... John writes, Jesus said, nor is it explained by the will of man. I mean, ultimately, not even your choice explains your salvation. Now, we know no one is saved apart from faith in Christ, and no one believed for you. You really believed. God didn't believe for you. You really believed. You exercised faith. But we know from Scripture that faith was a gift from God. So that if you ask, where did my faith come from? The answer is it came from a work of regeneration that God did in your soul so that even your faith is a gift from God. You can't even take credit for your believing, which is why he's able to say your salvation is not explained by your will, not even by your choice, not in the ultimate sense. Not by blood, not by effort, not by your decision in the final sense, but God explains your salvation. You were born of God. Are you born of God? Has the Lord granted you the new birth? 
1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And I love this next statement. And so we are. You see, we're not just called God's children. We really are God's children. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you really have hope in Jesus? Well, here's the evidence you do. You're pursuing holiness. You're dealing with the sin in your life. Now we know we struggle with sin every day, don't we? We stumble in many ways. But what sets the people of God apart is we have been saved into a life of perpetual repentance. We see our sins, we confess our sins, we mortify our sins, we turn from our sins to follow Christ afresh and anew, every step of the way, all the way until we see Him face to face. We've not yet arrived at the purity we will know in eternity, but we pursue it. We purify ourselves even as He is pure. So salvation is real, and that real salvation changes your family. Everyone cannot say God is their father. God is everyone's father from the standpoint of creation, but not from the standpoint of salvation. Not everybody's your brother. No, it's, it's when God saves a person that He makes them a member of His spiritual family. That is both a legal reality and it is an experiential reality. Legally, He grants us a new position. This is what He means by sons of God. He's talking about adoption a new legal standing before the Lord. Romans 8, 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit is given to sons, you see. The Spirit is given to those who've been adopted by God. Ephesians 1.5 makes the point that you were predestined for this adoption, if indeed you've received it. Ephesians 1.5 says He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. One of the beautiful things about adoption in the human realm is someone chose you. Natural birth has its own beauties and its own wonder, but the wonder of adoption is that you, you belong to someone because they chose you. And the same is true in terms of salvation. The Lord chose us to be His sons and daughters, which is to say He has chosen to give to us all the rights, all the privileges of sonship in His family. We have an inheritance. We are heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation changes your family in terms of legal standing, but salvation is real and it changes your standing experientially also. You have a new condition God didn't just change your status. He changed you if you're saved. You're not the man or woman you once were. By the way, this is one of the real matters for wisdom for Christian parents as you raise your children. Parents, rightly so, are so concerned about their child's salvation, but sometimes what we do is we end up pressing for what really is just a decision. And they pray a prayer and we teach them the right things to say that would describe salvation. And they're able to say it. And then we baptize them. And then they hold on to that. I know I'm saved because I prayed a prayer. I know I'm saved because I said the right words. I know I'm saved because I was dunked in water. Are you a new creation? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Dear ones, we do not believe because we believe the Bible. We do not believe in decisional regeneration. No, we believe in regeneration that results in a decision. There's a difference. New birth produces faith. It's not you believe, then you're born again. No, you're born again, then you believe. Galatians 6.15 says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul writing to people who've been influenced by Judaizers who put such emphasis on circumcision and Jewish rituals and all of that. And he says, that's not what I'm asking, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. Are you a new creation? Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He not only predestined your salvation, your adoption, your new nature. He already predestined a new pathway that you will walk. Works that will be produced in and through your life. Fruit that will remain. God, God doesn't have fruitless children. Colossians 3.10 says, Speaking to people who are a new self, he says, we put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. And Christ explains who you now are. Your new self was created by the one into whose image you're being conformed. You're a new creation. Ephesians 4.24 says the same thing. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. There are other examples, but you get it. You get the picture. In both ways, Christians have come into a new family, legally, experientially. A new standing, you're a new creation. And you can tell the difference between those who have experienced that and those who have not. 1 John 3.10 says, by this it is evident. We just need to pause for a moment and let that sink in. By this it is evident. It's clear. It's discernible. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not, from, not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Show me someone who's not pursuing holiness by the standard of Scripture. Do you know that we're, we're, a, we're a Scripture-formed people? The new birth has a connection to the Word of God. The Word of God was there when you were born again. It was the instrument that God used as He brought into being a new creation. And as a result, you and I are formed in a way that we receive the Word and respond to it obediently. Not per perfectly, but as a pattern. So show me someone who's not pursuing righteousness according to the standard of Scripture. The Bible doesn't really matter to you. You live by your own opinions, your own ideas, your feelings, your inclinations. That's not the evidence of the new birth. But someone who's willing, in, in fact, to sacrifice their opinions and their natural inclinations and their feelings and obey the Scriptures. Now there's someone who's learned a new kind of authority because they're a new creation. And yet it's not like you would have seen in a Pharisee or a scribe. It's not cold. It's not mechanical. You love your brethren because you love God and because His love has been poured out in your hearts. It is an obedience that flows from love and it's an obedience that manifests love. Salvation changes your family. So that the only ones who can say they are sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit. These are the sons of God. Now, the second thing I want to point out is we're under that main heading, salvation is real. It changes your family. Now, as a result, here's the second thing I want to point out under that main heading. It changes your following. Or we could say it changes your course changes your pathway. I've mentioned it, but I want to underscore it. This is why he uses the word led. 
all who are being led by the Spirit of God. He's not just present. His influence is exerted. You are different because He is present. Your life is on a new course because He is present. Now, I do want to say this. This is not, in in this context, this is not a statement about guidance and decision-making. In fact, it's interesting, this exact phraseology, led by the Spirit, in both cases where it's used here in the book of Galatians, it's not in the realm of decision-making, and it's interesting because that's how we often think about it. Are you being led by the Spirit? How are you making your decisions? How are you making your choices? That's not what he's talking about. If you want to know what he's talking about, read the first 11 verses again. And the real change that he's describing is a change in relationship to sin. Those who are led by the Spirit are those who no longer walk according to the flesh. They now walk according to the Spirit, which means they are putting to death by that Spirit the deeds of the body. They're led by the Spirit in the sense that they are mortifying sin, turning from sin, following Christ, not just initially at the point where you first believed, but now for the rest of your life, this is what characterizes you. You are putting sin to death and you're pursuing righteousness. That's what he's talking about. A new pathway that belongs to a new creation. You're spiritually alive. This is what he means in the obligation he talks about in verses 12 and 13. When he says, so then brethren, brethren, I'm talking to brethren. We are under obligation. God has given us new capacities and as a result, a new responsibility. And here's what your responsibility is not. To live like you are still in the flesh. Not to the flesh to live according to the sin principle that abides within you, not according to the flesh. And then he says something very serious. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. And by the way, I believe what he's talking about here looks to the end. You are dead and will die. You're still in your sins. Therefore, you must die. And the evidence is you walk according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body... That's indwelling sin. You are mortifying sin, dealing with sin. What does he say? You will live. What you're giving evidence of is you're alive now. You have eternal life. You're a son of God, and you'll live forever. So salvation doesn't just mean transference from one realm to another. We know that's true. We went from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son, but it also means a new condition, therefore a new course. I know you know this, all that I'm saying tonight, in fact, very well. But I want to remind you, encourage you with it. I want you to look at Ephesians 2 real quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. This is so clear in these verses. This new condition leading to a new course. We are not what we once were. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you were dead. This is all of our testimony. This is all of our biography. Everybody has the same testimony in this sense. God may have saved you young or old. You may have had a notorious life of sin. You may have been raised in a Christian family, been a good boy or girl, very moral, doesn't matter. We were all born in the world spiritually dead. And in those trespasses and sins, we once walked. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world walking in lockstep with every other lost person in that sense. You lived your life according to the flesh. And in that condition, what were you doing? Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that is, Satan was your father. Among whom, the sons of disobedience, among them, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the bodies and the mind, I mean, you you lived your life according to nature. What drove your life were your passions and your own thoughts. 
and were by nature, which is to say by birth, children of wrath. You deserve the wrath of God. You were on your way to hell. Like the rest of mankind, this is the whole world's condition. Now we have the two sweetest words in all the Bible, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, we didn't deserve it. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. I love that. It's not like your heart started beating a little bit. He said, now let me help you the rest of the way. No, you were stone cold dead when He raised you from the dead. You understand that? Go preach to the graveyard. Nobody's hearing you. Nobody's going to respond. And that's what you were like spiritually. We could have preached the gospel to you all day long. And if the Lord didn't move and work in your heart, you weren't hearing it or responding to it. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He, you see, made us alive together with Christ. And this is why He declares, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where you are positionally right now is as good as glorified. You share the life of Christ and your Savior and your mediator, your priest, the head of this body of believers. He's, he's in the heavens. We're seated with Him there. Why did God do this? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Nobody's going to be in heaven with thumbs and lapels saying, look at, look at what I did. No, our, our story's all the same. Look at what God did. And then he says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. New family, a new following, a new course, a new pathway. Paul is able to say what he says in verse 14, because salvation is real. It's real. What you claim you have, is it real? Have you been changed? Are you a son and daughter of God? And therefore you have a new course that characterizes your life. Second point, last point. This same statement is a proof of salvation's security. He says we are sons of God if we have the Spirit of God. If we're being led by the Spirit of God, we are sons of God. We belong to the family of God. We really are His children. And let this truth resonate in your heart tonight. God does not disown His children, ever. The Spirit, I mentioned this earlier, is the seal, the guarantee of the final promised possession. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of His glory. Sonship means having the Spirit. Having the Spirit means security. It means you're saved forever. And so I want to finish tonight by thinking about that because it gets to the heart of where we find assurance, you see. Pastor, I'm concerned, am I saved or not? This person I love, are they saved or not? All these years I thought I was saved, then I discovered that I wasn't. Well, how do you know? How do you know whether or not you belong to the family of God? How do you know whether or not you have the Spirit of God? How do you know? Biblically speaking, where would the Bible direct your attention for an answer to that? And so let me give you four things very quickly, four ways God has designed for us to have assurance. God wants His people to know they're His people. Number one, assurance is based on unobservable reality. Unobservable reality. I'm talking about the facts of the gospel. I'm talking about the promises of the gospel. This is where assurance always begins. I know that I'm saved because God doesn't lie. And when he tells me in his word that if I trust in his son, I will be saved forever, then if I trust in his son, I'll be saved forever. Now we have to ask, don't we? My faith, is it genuine? Is it saving faith or is it the faith of demons? The book of James talks about that. You believe that God is one, you do well. The devils tremble. 
demons tremble. So you're not saved because you have the right words. You're not saved because you have the right orthodox belief. It's possible to say the right things and believe the right things intellectually and not have been born again. The demons know the truth about Jesus, but they don't love Him and they don't belong to Him in the sense of salvation. God provided no salvation for the angels. But if your faith is genuine, you've been saved. God's promises are the foundation for our assurance. And as I said earlier, and you can read it in your own time, we go to the end of chapter 8 of Romans, and there's this extended, lengthy list of things that might possibly threaten our eternal security. And with every single one, Paul says, no, it's impossible. Spirit of God through Paul. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Second, assurance is based on observable reality. The new birth, you can't see it. I've never seen the new birth occur in someone's life, meaning I can see what happened in their soul. In fact, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the new birth, do you remember what he compares the Spirit's work to? The wind. If I said tonight, show me the wind, you can't do it. You can't see the wind. But I'll tell you what you can see. You can see the results of the wind. You can show me the trees blowing, the leaves moving, the grass moving. You can show me the results of the wind. So that our assurance is first based on what I can't see, what God says to me about the new birth and about faith in Christ. But then assurance is found in what I can see, and that is the changes that occur wherever the new birth has occurred. And I think we can summarize it by just referring to it this way, family likeness. If you belong to the family of God, you begin to take on the family likeness. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, we want to say clearly what the Bible would indicate. We see this all over Scripture. There's a sense in which you were sanctified, that is set apart unto God the moment you were saved, sanctified finally, right? Set, put into a new category. But progressive sanctification takes place over a lifetime. We're in school, we're all growing. And we will not all grow at the same rate, and we will all not bear the same amount of fruit. Jesus gives the parable of the soils. What does he say? Some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. So we don't all bear the same amount of fruit, and we all don't grow at the same rate. And you can look at a believer's life. I mean, people who eventually bear unmistakable fruit, you could have looked at them during certain seasons and wondered whether the Lord had actually saved them or not. In fact, you may know this, you can look at your own life sometimes and wonder, what is going on in my life? So we need to acknowledge that. But if the Lord has saved you, you won't be fruitless. And so reading the book of Ephesians about the fruit of the Spirit, book of Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, look for those things that the Bible says give evidence of the Spirit's presence in a person's life. Do you see those things? Read the book of 1 John, a belief in the gospel, a love for Christ, a love for the church, a sensitivity to sin, grieving over sin, confessing your sin, forgiving people. I heard it described once. It was helpful to me. It's like when the Lord saves you, to live in sin is like holding your breath. Everybody can hold their breath. Some can hold their breath longer than others. But if you're alive, sooner or later you breathe. And when the Lord has saved you, to live in sin is like holding your breath. And it may go on even for a time, but sooner or later, if you have the Spirit of God, if you are a new creation, you have to breathe so that you don't hold on to things like unforgiveness and bitterness and you don't hold grudges and you don't try to get even and you, you don't pay back. Why? Because you're alive. You've got to breathe. And breathing is doing the will of God. For a Christian. Do you see the family likeness? The character of Christ being formed in your life? So just keeping on track here, think about this logically. One, what does the Bible say about the children of God? Two, what does the Bible identify as the marks of the children of God? Three, what do I see in my own life that speaks of those evidences? This is one way that we know assurance. Unobservable reality, observable reality. Promises, produce. Third, assurance is based on God's preserving power. 
If I have to be saved by holding on to what God has done in my life, I mean, if I'm ultimately the one who explains my perseverance, I'm lost. I couldn't be saved by works on the front end. I can't be saved by works on the back end. No, the one who took me from deadness to life, from blindness to sight, from slavery to freedom, the one who made me a new creation, it is true to say that he has produced in me a faith that will persevere, but that faith perseveres by his power. He preserves those whom he saves. What he begins, he finishes. You are holding on to Jesus, dear brother or sister, but you hold on to him because he's holding on to you and he won't let you go. He'll never let you go. He holds on to you by his power and that power is expressed in a persevering faith. That is, God is working, guarding you through faith. Sustaining the faith He granted you so that you will not, by the grace of God, apostatize. Maybe somebody's listening to me tonight. You feel like you're on the very edge of losing your faith. The edge of walking away from Christ. The edge of crashing, you know, being a castaway, a shipwreck. If the Lord has really saved you, He won't let you go. He will bring you to the point of surrender, godly sorrow, turning from your sin to turn to Christ afresh and anew. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's all the truths we've already been talking about. But then he says this, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. One day, dear ones, when you have that inheritance that is yours in Jesus Christ, your story will be that what God began, he finished. He sustains you every step of the way. He will never let you go. And this is why you know you can't walk away. He's created in you a love and a faith that will not let him go because he won't let you go. Think about the disciples in John 6. You have the loose disciples, the disciples in name only, walking away from Jesus because now he's teaching very hard things. And Jesus says to those closest to him, do you want to go away also? And what do they say? Where can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Such was their faith. They now had nowhere else to go. And that's the case with us. Last thought. Assurance based on unobservable reality. Assurance based on observable reality. Assurance based on God's preserving power. Finally, assurance is enjoyed based on God's testimony. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And then he says this, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Assurance ultimately comes from the Holy Spirit. But how does He grant you assurance? You're not going to hear Him speak to you audibly. You're not looking for some kind of feeling or experience. The testimony of the Spirit is the testimony of Scripture. And what the Spirit of God does, working together with what you know is true in your own soul, is He takes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and he brings it to your attention in a way where there is comfort and joy, a recognition of what is true in you that you can't explain. Do you see what I've done? I mean, it amounts to that. The Spirit of God says to us, do you see what I've done? This message that you believe, when did you come to believe it? This 
Messiah whom you love and desire to follow. When, when was that birthed in your heart? This grief over sin, this unwillingness to let sin abide in your life. When did that begin? Who did that for you? The hope that you have. It makes you want to live for eternity, not for the temporal things of this world. Who put that in your heart? The desire to honor God and be like Jesus. Who taught you that? And so he takes what is truly Christian from the Scriptures and in a way that can't be fully explained, he applies that word to your own life in a way that you're able to rejoice in your eternal future. Lord, I am not yet what I want to be. I am not yet what I'm going to be. But as I look at the Word of God and am honest with my own life, I am not who I was. You have made me your own. And sometimes the greatest gift God gives you so that you can receive that testimony, we read it earlier tonight, is trouble. Because with all the sufferings and all the sorrows and all the you know, vicissitudes of life, all the things that weigh us down, where do you turn? Who do you look to? Who do you believe? Who do you want to obey? What do you want the outcome to be? And when the answer is, I want God to be glorified. I want to please Christ. Well, now your hope increases. Because through those troubles, His character is formed in you, which is family likeness, which marks you as one who is being led by the Spirit of God. Therefore, you are a son of God. My prayer is that God would grant to my brothers and sisters joy in the knowledge that He has saved you and my prayer is for anyone who is not yet my brother or sister, you would look honestly at your life tonight and ask, am I living according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? And if the answer, the true answer is, I'm living according to the flesh by the passions of the flesh and the desires of the mind, if I'm just living a natural life, then my need is not for a form of godliness. My need is for the life-changing power of Christ. Jesus Save me. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the assurance of salvation. Thank you for the truth that as many as are led by your Spirit, these are your sons. And as we look at our lives and examine whether or not we really belong to you, may we consider the facts of the gospel, the results of the new birth, Lord, may we understand the power that explains our perseverance and may we receive the testimony of Your Spirit in Scripture as You, the living God, apply it to each of us in a real and personal way. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.